Hello and welcome to the National Museums Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories. There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Previous episodes have looked at the themes of love, resilience, work, and isolation. In this one, we're talking about movement, and I mean that in both senses of that term. You'll hear about a powerful campaign to try to bring about change after a truly horrifying murder. We'll talk too about a toy designed for small children to reassure them, or attempt to, after a terrifying journey. And there's a brilliant example of Scouse innovation at its best, a public transport system that was the envy of the world and is still missed to this day. That, of course, is the Liverpool Overhead Railway, something my grandparents could get positively tearful about when it cropped up in conversation, and believe me, it did. But we start with the anti-racism movement, the Anthony Walker Foundation. Anthony was a young man of just 18 and studying for his A-levels when he was killed in an unprovoked, racially motivated attack in Liverpool in the summer of 2005. His family, and notably his mother, G, were determined that he would not be forgotten. The foundation was set up in 2006 to attempt to tackle racism, hate crime and discrimination. It puts a special emphasis on encouraging people to come forward and report, whether to the foundation or to the police. Daniel O'Connor has talked to Ben Osu current strategy lead at the foundation about how it was set up and how it tries to change things through education programs, some of them based at the Anthony Walker Education Centre. We're living in a time in which a protest can ignite quicker than ever. The ability to immediately share footage and locations across social media allows us to group together and enact change across the globe almost instantaneously. But these movements as we've seen in the case of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, are all too often spawned on the back of a tragedy. And it takes the courage and the conviction of the families and the friends and the victims themselves to speak out. In the final episode of this series, we'll be focusing on the act of protest itself. But for this story, we wanted to contemplate how one group of people, in this case the family of a victim of a heinous crime, is moving the conversation about racism in this country forward. I spoke to Ben Osu, strategy lead at the Anthony Walker Foundation. So the foundation was set up after the racially motivated murder of Anthony in 2005. His parents and family didn't want, you know, his death to be just another death, another statistic. They didn't want him to die in vain and they wanted to leave a positive, lasting legacy. So they set up the foundation to tackle racism and support victims of predominantly um, racist hate crimes. So the foundation does that in a number of ways. And one of those ways is we go into schools and communities and deliver 
educational workshops. We support victims of hate crime on Merseyside through a, a specialised victim support service. Um, and then we also work with businesses, employers and, and public sector organisations to tap into you know, the, the various different um, audiences and stakeholder groups that we can. Anthony's family did not want him to become just another statistic. And if you're walking through Liverpool city centre at the moment, you'll see some posters and billboards the foundation has erected with some shocking stats like police in England and Wales recorded 76,000 racist hate crimes in 2019-20. And in 2020, the Anthony Walker Foundation had 1,309 referrals for race and faith-based crimes. These stats are framed with messages like, what if everyone in Anfield was a victim of verbal or physical assault? But the foundation's latest campaign aims to encourage more people to report hate crimes. And Ben believes those reported numbers are barely scratching the surface of the issue. We set up a, a new campaign this year called Speak Out Stop Hate. And that was all about highlighting different ways that people can report hate crime. So generally, we probably get about a thousand referrals through to our support service every year. And the majority of them come from uh, the police. But we know that there's a lot of stuff that goes unreported. So I could be just be walking down the street and someone could call me the N-word. And me being me, being, you know, a confident person, I could just brush it off and go, well, do you know what? You know, that that they've gone now, it's happened. I'm not kind of any worse off. I might be a little bit shocked or startled, but other than that, there's not really much I can do. And I would just go about my daily business. And that's not right, to be fair. I should I should report it. And even if there's no follow-up from the police in terms of, you know, finding the person or whoever it might be because it's just on a random street and you don't know who the person was and it would be difficult to track them, it still should be reported just so that we've got a better understanding of the severity of, of, of the situation. And people don't report a thing for a number of reasons. One, because, like I've just said, it's just, it, it's happened, let's leave it. Two, there's still a lack of confidence and a lack of trust within the police and within the, the criminal justice system. And what we're trying to say through this campaign is that you actually don't have to report to the police. You can report it directly to us and you can access any support that you might need through us. You might not need support, but if you want it, it's there. As powerful a tool as social media is in creating movements, it is also being used as a vehicle for hate speech in such a way that on the day that this podcast is released, Premier League football clubs are staging a three-day social media blackout because of repeated targeted abuse aimed at black footballers. The Premier League is asking social media companies to do more, to eradicate online hate by filtering, blocking, swift takedowns of offensive posts, an improved verification process and re-registration prevention, plus active assistance for law enforcement agencies to identify and prosecute originators of illegal content. Online hate is a challenge that has unfolded dramatically in Ben's 13 years working with the Anthony Walker Foundation. Being racist online, that's a big one. And that's, you know, that's down to the responsibility of social media companies as, as well and, and people regulating comments. But I think it's also down to the police and down to criminal justice agencies. I think there's not really been any serious repercussions for anyone so far that has committed an offence or generally in terms of the grand scheme of things about, you know, the amount of 
you know, abuse that's online, especially that's racist abuse that just doesn't get picked up is ridiculous compared to the amount of kind of charges or criminal proceedings that have, that have, that have followed. I think it's quite telling because we're in a, a, a point now where football companies are starting to, to speak out about it, and that's great. But we're also in a position where we're hearing all this stuff about the Super League, and actually that's getting more attention and more airtime. And I think it's even got a, a space in, in Parliament. It was on the same day to talk about it and discuss it. Yet racism and the issue of racism or any form of hate crime just automatically, you know, gets forgotten about or it, it's just, do we have to have the conversation? And the point I'm trying to make is, yes, we have to have that conversation and we need more people to have that conversation. And then not just conversation, but, but action moving forward. I think if you see a racist comment online, I would, I would report it to the police and I would screenshot it as so that you've got your evidence and I would hand it over to the police and I would hope that they would, you know, do something with it and that they, they, will, they will pursue it. Whether there's the capacity within the police for the amount of people that might end up doing that type of work, I don't know. But then there was an interesting article by Andy Cook, who used to be the Chief Constable of Merseyside Police and he's now moved on to a senior national role. And he said, you can give him a £5 billion budget and he would spend 80% of that on reducing poverty because you can have all of the police that you, that you want, but actually having more police doesn't reduce crime. <laughs> it probably makes it easier to deal with and will probably make response times better, but it actually doesn't solve the issue of having crime. I think that's really true. Because we can we can have all the resource that that we want, but unless we're really getting down to the to the to the crux of it, which is people are racist and it's institutional and it's ingrained in our society and our fabric because of a number of different things, and poverty is one of them. We're never actually going to solve it. Liverpool has the oldest black community in Britain, stretching back to the 1730s. The fact that racism still exists in our society validates Ben's point that is never going to change unless we strike at the root of the problem. The Anthony Walker Foundation's education programmes aim to tackle early on the beliefs that spawn hate. But in order for the conversations on racism to truly gain a space in the wider public consciousness, it has taken tragedies in the murders of the likes of Anthony, the likes of Stephen Lawrence, and more recently, George Floyd. And one has to wonder, why? I think it evokes an emotional response that people can't deny. When Anthony died, I'm sure there was mothers of every single colour all over Merseyside and all over the UK that put themselves in, in the shoes of, of G and wondered, you know, what would, uh, how would I feel if that was my son? With George Floyd, we... We got to witness actually what happened, which when you think back now is quite disturbing that we physically watched someone die on the street. Black people have been dealing with this for over 400 years. With George Floyd, enough people stood up and reacted and responded to it, which then just sent a, a, a ripple effect around the world. And I think black people felt like that they weren't alone anymore in terms of talking about racism. And I think the last year has kind of opened people's eyes to the levels and the nuances in which 
you know, racism can be presented. That has never happened before. And I think now, if something was to happen that wasn't explicitly racist, but it had racist undertones, I think more people would be able to identify that than what they have previously. If you do witness or experience racism, then you can report it at speakoutstophate.com. Daniel O'Connor talking to Ben Osu. Now, if we're honest, perhaps too many of us have become rather complacent, maybe even indifferent, about all those images of desperate migrant boats heading across the notoriously dangerous English Channel. It's easy to forget that every single person on one of those boats has a family and a story of their own. The border force are the first point of contact for the migrants, and this can be pretty intimidating, particularly if you're a small child. One little exhibit in the Border Force section of the Maritime Museum tells a rather different story. The toy is Wilson, a small figure made of rope, a toy created by a Border Force officer to pass to children on board the boats. With more, here's Steve Butler, curator of the Border Force National Museum collection. Well, the the Seas Museum is a coming together of of what we now call border force. It began its days as Customs and Excise National Museum, and it has now become the Border Force Museum. And it's a collection of objects drawn together from largely border force and officers and the department, uh, or command as it is now, pulling together all a load of massive objects, which effectively form the basis of the museum. And from those objects, that, that collection, we now tell a story about the work of Border Force, the work of officers that are working on the front line or working behind the scenes. And over the years, we've been developing this collection of objects, which ref- really associates to the work of Border Force and all those predecessor organisations that they once were part of, which was Customs and Excise, HM Revenue and Customs. Um, So the story has largely been about drugs and concealment. It's been about protecting the border. It's been about protecting us from dangerous material that's coming in, which could be weapons, it could be prohibited drugs, it could be dangerous products, counterfeit material. And Border Force are there as that front line to try and stop some of this material entering the country. But they're also there, of course, to manage and control now, as Border Force is set up, to control the movement of people. And so our story has expanded in recent years to explore controls on migration, effectively, into the country. We often have live, well, we, we call them live events, but we meet officers from Border Force, and they have come to the museum. We'll work with them on various occasions. It can be something we call the Border Force Open Day. We've had Modern Slavery Day, which was focusing on the immigration side, the immigration control side of, of Border Force's work. And it was at one of these events that we encountered this very powerful little rope toy, which was called, which is called Wilson. When you first see it, it's just a very simple little rope toy. And it was sat on a desk by two Border Force officers who were talking about their role, working on boats, working on the marine side, if you like, of Border Force's work. And they are there to, in many ways, they've been there on a rescue mission 
uh, actually to meet the boats that the migrant people, these people have been often on small inflatable rafts uh, in recent times crossing the, the English Channel. And Border Force are part of that front line to meet these people and, and really register them into the UK. And, and But first of all, it's been a point of uh, safety. It's, it's been saving them, really, from these small craft. And they're part of that group who have saved these these young, often young families as they have the, as they have met them in in this instance in the in the channel, and this little rope figure was made by one of the officers who serves on the boat, and it was a, a means of offering these young family groups and these young children just something to to welcome them to to break that awful point where they're, their first point of contact is often with a large and uniformed officers, often in protective gear, out at the sea. These people often have absolutely nothing with them at all other than the clothes they're, they're dressed in. And this little rope toy was, which is called Wilson after the Castaway film. And he was, he is a very good rope ropesman. And he, he made, he created this little rope figure to give as a toy to these young children as they were pulled on board the boat. It was a means of just breaking down barriers. It was, it was to give them something, give the child something to hold on to when very often they're in this awful situation where they have absolutely nothing. And this little rope toy was the first thing that they encountered when they sort of met these probably quite intimidating figures in uniform and hauling them into safety, into their boats, into their larger craft. Um, so Wilson had such a powerful story to tell. Yet when you see it, you know, on this tabletop, I thought, well, what is the connection? And of course, for me as a curator, it's often that departure from what is an interesting, or maybe sometimes it's not a particularly interesting object, but the story behind it is can be so powerful and so emotive. and. Wilson, our little character, has had such, it's, you can imagine it's met so many people's thoughts. It's, 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 it leads on to all sorts of discussions. Um, and it's meant so much for some of the officers who have been handing them out. It's, I mean, in, in their, in their officers themselves who are on the front line of doing this work also feel desperate for the, very often for the, the these young people that they meet. And they want to be able to, to, to give them something, to give them some form of hope in some instances. And I know some officers give sweets. They you know they literally go out and buy sweets. They've got something to give them. They, they, they might dress up and anything to try and make that initial reception easier and, and, and more greater humanity. And it all boils down to humanity, doesn't it? That, that means of offering something which is away from perhaps an awful journey that these people have, have made, even in just to reach the channel and to get across. That's the, probably their last journey potentially they've made of many, many hundreds of miles they have probably passed through, all the countries they've passed through to get to that one jumping off point. One thing the officer did say was, when he'd, he'd handed it to a young family, which, which he was involved in one of the boats, 
I think it might have, they have a number of cutters, larger cutters and smaller vessels as well. But the, the cutters are, are one of the more larger craft that they will use in out at, out, out at sea. And he was on board one of the cutters and he hands this little rope figure to, to a young family. And then they, they pass, once when they get to, to shore, uh, sometimes it will be to Dover, to the port, they come into the port of Dover. And then they'll pass the family, they'll pass the group on to another point of uh, a border force who will then take them further and put them into safety and start the process of talking to them and interviewing them and getting their backstory and putting them into protection, uh, food and, and water and whatever. But he said that what he remembers is they said goodbye to the family as they passed them off their boat and put them onto land. This little child passed over and looked at him and, sm and, and just held, was hugging this little rope character to themselves. And they said that what, that what meant so much to him. You know, they, at that point, they passed their part of their job was passed over to, some, to another crew, if you like, the land-based crew, and, that, and that's, that's the way he'd say goodbye to them. But the little rope figure was being held against the child's chest as, 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 he, as the child walked away. It was holding on. And that was the only thing that child had with them, you know, was that uh, as they landed and walked across the land, the one thing he remembers was a child carrying a little rope Wilson. So I'm Sarah Han, and I work in the learning and participation department at the museum. And uh, so one of my jobs is to engage with the public with different activities and workshops and um, really get the public engage with with the objects and the collections that we have in the museum. Wilson is a really good example of how the object tells the human story and sort of takes it away from the media story, if you like. So people may have seen in the news boats full of refugees and people seeking asylum and people being smuggled or trafficked over from one country to perhaps to the UK. And that's one thing, seeing it on a screen on the television, actually, you're a bit distanced from it. But if you come into the museum and you're shown a small rope doll and then told about the, the small child that this rope doll was given to, who had come such a long way, was incredibly frightened, had nothing to their name, didn't speak the language, and yet that doll was the thing that connected one human being to another, suddenly it becomes a different story and people become interested because they can relate to it. Many people have got children of their own. Many people have got grandchildren. Many people are children themselves. So they, they can kind of relate to it on a really personal level. And that's how you can really engage people with, with the museum objects is, is get those stories across to the visitor. Sarah Han and Steve Butler. And now to the Dockers' umbrella, way, way ahead of its time. The electric-powered Liverpool Overhead Railway opened in 1893. It became much loved and wildly popular and eventually stretched all the way from Dingle to Seaforth Sands. When I went to the Museum of Liverpool with my parents a couple of years ago, and bear in mind they were already in their 80s, they could not get enough of the exhibits all about the Overhead Railway. They were really excited about it. And during the course of this conversation, you're about to hear with Sharon Brown, curator of Land Transport, Daniel O'Connor also reveals himself to be a person who is very keen on this kind of thing. But hey, there's no shame in that. A fully electrified, environmentally friendly, reliable mass transit system 
with technological firsts like signal automation that can transport 20 million people a year in and out of Liverpool city centre with unrivaled elevated views of the UNESCO World Heritage waterfront. They sound like the futuristic, pie-in-the-sky plans of the most ambitious town planning regeneration schemes. Believe it or not, this isn't the future. This is part of Liverpool's past, and it stretches back almost 130 years. Sharon Brown is the curator of land transport at National Museums Liverpool. Liverpool was a very, very busy place since the first wet dock was built. 1710, 1715. Trade started to increase, and by the 1800s, you know, we were the second port of the British Empire after London. So in the mid-1800s, there'd been a lot of discussion about how this could be tackled, so maybe a tunnel or an elevated railway. But it wasn't until the 1880s that this came to fruition, really. The Liverpool Overhead Railway Company was set up to build a two-rail elevated railway. So it opened in 1893 and immediately was a big hit with dockers travelling to work, with messengers travelling between docks delivering messages. It was a really efficient service. It ran from early morning to late evening. The original route ran between Alexandra Dock and Herculaneum Dock. But to increase traffic in the evenings and at weekends, they extended it to Dingle and Seafall Sands. So it could take in more sort of residential um, traffic. So people travelling for leisure pursuits, you could get the overhead down to the pierhead and then hop on the ferry over to New Brighton. The people of Liverpool loved their overhead railway. In its busiest year, 1919, 18 million people used the six-mile service for commuting to the city centre, messaging between the docks, and for pleasure. For the exhibit on the line at the Museum of Liverpool, Sharon Brown and her colleagues conducted a number of interviews with people that regularly used the trains and based the following scripted monologue on it. I remember it was like yesterday, my first trip on this railway with my own grandfather. 1903 it was. I was eight, the same age as my granddaughter is now. The old man, he was proud of anything to do with the railway. Because back then, I was only a few years old. The first electric overhead railway anywhere proved that Liverpool was the greatest city in the world. That's what he used to say. It was so busy along the Dock Road, you see, with trams, Dock Railway, Horses and cars, dockers walking along, always really chocker with traffic and people. An overhead railway was a brilliant solution. He'd go on about how clever the engineers were, how they made all the metal legs and the railway stands in the yard near Seaford. They stood them up, the legs, along the dock road and built a deck on top. All appeared in midair. Took them four years. Of course, the old overhead railway took a bit of a battering in the war. The old station at Prince's Dock, that took a direct hit, 1941. They never did reopen it. But most of the railway, they managed to pass that up. Tell you what, take more than a few bombs to stop bus running. Hey, it's marvellous. People whizzing along here, wherever they're going, while down there on the Dock Road, jammed with traffic. And when it rains, people still walk along under the railway. That's why everyone calls it the Dockers Umbrella. It's not just for working people over the railway. People like me and the young'un 
love using it for pleasure trips. I'll tell you what, you can see everything from up here. Ships coming in from four corners of the earth, people on ferries, huge liners, all the sights, the sounds. It's better than the cinema. Considering the Liverpool overhead railway opened over 100 years ago, its technological ingenuity would put current schemes to shame. Consider HS2. The controversial network is designed essentially to catch up with the rest of Europe in terms of high-speed rail. France's not-too-dissimilar TGV service opened in 1983. But for HS2, current estimates think we're still a decade off. In 1893, while the likes of Chicago was pioneering an overhead railway powered by steam, the Liverpool overhead railway was light years ahead. When the railway was being planned, it was originally going to be uh, powered by steam, but uh, members of the overhead railway company went over to America to look at the electric street railways they had there, and, and they were inspired by them. And when they came home, there was a lot of debate, and it was decided that the railway um, would be powered by electricity. And the railway had its own electricity generating station at Bramley Moor Dock, up until 1927. But this was revolutionary, actually. And when the railway opened, it became the first electrically powered elevated railway in the world. And it also developed electric block automated signaling. They also introduced coloured lights in 1921. And they were so bright that they could be seen, but they said, from 3,000 feet away in whatever weather conditions. So this is what helped to make the railway so efficient because it wasn't really affected by weather conditions or anything else that was happening anywhere. It could run without any problem and quite safely. The railway may well have been ahead of its time, but so was its dramatic decline. It was badly damaged in the air raids of 1941 and the small company that was operating the service struggled to maintain the lines. The Liverpool Overhead Railway eventually became unsustainable, ironically, because of two other technological innovations. As time went on, the railway did become affected. Its operation was affected by what was happening around it in the city. So um, levels of unemployment, the fortunes of the docks, and two other innovations, as it were, that affected the operation of the railway were the telephone, because people didn't need to travel en masse up and down the railway on the train delivering messages or documents etc and obviously as people started to have their own car they would travel to work by car the railway was incredibly efficient so even though it was damaged during the war it was bombed several times during the May blip um, the route continued as far as it could and it rarely closed so it suffered a lot from wear and tear the track 1933, there was a lot of repairs done to it that cost quite a lot of money. And by 1954, they were becoming concerned again that the track bed and the structure of the railway was in need of repair. So they, the company had a survey done by a private company. And the result of that was it would cost £2 million to keep it running well into the future efficiently. So they decided that the railway should close and um, I had to get permission. Uh, a private bill was taken to the House of Commons to be approved. And um, there was such uproar in the city 
Um, it was quite incredible. The newspapers were full at the time of stories of people um, saying, you know, this is the end of our city. People won't be able to travel to work. It's going to cost the working man more. It's going to take more time for people to travel by bus. Um, but also people loved the railway. They loved the structure. It was part of their lives. It was part of a, it was part of a city and it was so important to people. And there was a conference organised at St George's Hall, Save the Overhead, with all sorts of ideas put forward that British Rail should help out, that the City Council should help out. But in the end, none of it came to fruition and sadly the railway did close. Its last day of operation was the 30th of December 1956. Sadly, the railway was no more and I can understand why they made that decision at the time. But in hindsight... No, it's one of those, if I had a penny for every person who said to me during my work in life at the museum, if only we'd kept the overhead railway, it would be fantastic. And yeah, it would. And what a solution for getting to people um, to the new Evans Stadium at Bramley Moor Dock. What better way to arrive at a football match than on an overhead railway? It would just be a unique selling point. Confession time. I'm something of a railway enthusiast. And it's become clear during the course of this story, specifically an overhead railway enthusiast. If you'll allow me some time to be boastful, Wikipedia lists the most notable overhead railways in the world as New York, done it. Chicago, done it. The London Docklands Light Railway, done it. Berlin, done it. The Eureka Mome Line in Tokyo, done it. And the Liverpool Overhead Railway the route of which I would have been able to see from my childhood bedroom window had I have been born 40 years earlier. Sadly, I've not done that. Chicagans will tell you about the unique perspective of their city that their elevated railway gives. And I'd love nothing more than to have approached the Liver Building, passing the docks and the cruise liners and the ferries of the River Mersey on the right-hand side, on board the Liverpool Overhead Railway. But my passion for all of this stems from one exhibit in the Museum of Liverpool. And although we'll never be able to go on the actual Liverpool Overhead Railway, Sharon and her team have done an incredible job at giving us the most authentic experience possible. At the Museum of Liverpool, we've got the last surviving motor coach from the railway, which is what the normal everyday workers would have travelled in. When we were putting up the display in the Museum of Liverpool using the motor coach, it's um, at authentic height. People said to us, like, don't make it too clean and too pretty looking because it just wasn't like that. It was an everyday working railway and it was often dirty and smelly. Whoever decided to save the motor coach, I love that person because (laughs) that was foresight. And, you know, thankfully we have that in the museum and it's just such a draw for people who remember the railway and want to come and remember, but also for people who didn't know that the railway existed, they come and they look and they think, wow, I had no idea that Liverpool had an elevated railway and it was such a unique and innovative railway. Sharon Brown, curator of land transport at the Museum of Liverpool. And those views must have been absolutely fantastic. He was right, way, way better than anything you can see at the cinema. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed everything you've heard in this podcast. And there are more, of course, liverpoolmuseums.org.uk forward slash podcast. You have been listening to a National Museum's podcast on movement. 
As we record, we're less than three weeks away from the excitement of reopening. For the full National Museum's Liverpool experience, why not become a member? Find out more at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk forward slash membership. This week's episode was hosted by Jane Garvey, stories by Daniel O'Connor and Sam Carr, post-production by Onomatopoeia Post Productions, artwork by Safa Khan, and music by Big Giant Circles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>